0: Hello and welcome to the Coming Out of the Basement podcast for the fourth week of May 2012. I'm your co-host Carlos and with me is your co-host BJ. Today we're going to talk about some terrific radiant humble pig.
1: Okay, you lost me on that one.
0: Uh, see, it's a Charlotte's Web reference. So,
1: <laughs> Okay, I should have known that. I
0: should have known that. Now, Today we're actually going to talk about uh, DMing tips like we talked a little bit about last week. And then the surprise topic for this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about classic anime which isn't a subject we've talked about a lot here, but it's it's one that I'm very interested in, and we'll get into that in a little bit.
1: But before we get into it, let's uh, do some of our, our normal coverage. First of all, Avengers still doing blockbuster work right now.
0: Still doing yes. Uh, the headlines: Avengers sinks Battleship, and battle so on and so on.
1: It, it is it is highly embarrassing that that uh, Avengers made twice the amount of money this weekend that Battleship made, yet it was Battleship's opening weekend and it was Avengers' third weekend.
0: Yes, yeah, that was that is pretty sad. And so Battleship did not do particularly well. Um, it was, it's a it's a weird kind of thing because like the Avengers Battleship opened overseas, uh, and actually it has theoretically uh, made back its money due to that you know overseas sales, but it's doing nowhere near the amount that they predicted it would do in the U.S.
1: Not at all, not at all, and and the unfortunate reality of these these things are is if it doesn't do well in the U.S. it's usually considered a bomb at that point.
0: Yep. And so now, that's that's the talk on Battleship at the moment, which I haven't seen, <clears throat> but
1: I have no desire to see it either. The big question, however, is Men in Black 3, because that's coming up mm-hmm. this weekend. And that one, um, do you know how much money they've spent on that movie? I have no idea. They have spent, from what I understand, and I could be wrong, but from what I understand, they spent $375 million, last I heard on that one. Holy cow. Are you and planning on seeing that opening weekend? <laughs> no, I'm not, honestly. I, I, I have yeah. no interest in it. I, I feel that the Mid-In-Black story has been sufficiently covered and told. I, I have no desire to see it. So the question becomes, I tell you, someone's going to get fired if, if Men in black 3 gets um, is outperformed by Avengers for a fourth week, right? Yeah, I,
0: I, I would imagine that wouldn't happen, but... I, yeah, I also have no desire to see Men in Black Three like in the theaters. So yeah, I, I really wonder who their audience is and you know what they're hoping what they're hoping to do. I, I really I don't have a good sense of that just from seeing what's been out there so far.
1: So I mean I, I don't know if they can keep up the uh, the momentum. It would be nice to see them do another um, topping weekend, but Men in Black Three is a big property. But like I said, if if they beat Men in Black Three. Somebody over there is getting fired. I, it's, it's absolutely, you know, yeah, totally the sheer <laughs> amount of money. So, anything else going on in the news? Um, I was going
0: to mention a couple of things. We actually had some uh, responses. Uh, from from some of our last podcasts uh, and also though I finally had a chance to catch up with the tech shop boys and the tech shop boys have now created their network page and we are linked there uh, along with the tech shop boys themselves and a new podcast called the anthropology of cyber entertainment uh, which which is not uh, quite up yet but you know we're looking forward to, to seeing how that comes out but yeah the tech shop boys talked about a few things in the last couple of episodes that I thought would be interesting to touch on um, you know as we're just talking about movies right now one of the things that that they said that they've experienced is they've had some really terrible experiences at some of their local movie theaters because you know you have people talking, you have babies there, you have people making noise and stuff like that, and generally just a, a poor experience. You know, expensive popcorn, expensive drinks, cra- crazy things like that. Um, one of the things that I wanted to say, and not you know to rub it in or anything, but it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, here in Austin, in particular you know and, and now there 's there 's a franchise in different parts of the country, but uh, it started in Austin. We have the Alamo Draft House, which is an awesome theater um they they serve food and drinks uh, alcohol uh they have a no baby policy uh except for on specific baby days um and they they have a no talking texting policy that they're very serious about like if if anybody ruins the movie experience they get thrown out and occasionally people will get refunded you know so they're they're very very serious
1: they have a lot of really fun commercials um do you have any favorites of those? Well, they're they're just so serious about their no talking and texting that they throw that one lady out. She left a drunken message on their answering I machine. Will, that, I will link to that. It is so much fun. That ended up being on Anderson Cooper. It got like national news um, coverage because. Yeah, and they were celebrated. You know, finally somebody's willing to step up to the rude people who, you know, that little glowing screen, you know, your eyes immediately go to it as soon as you see someone turn on their cell phone. We, as I admitted, I went to the Avengers four times. One of the times we were up in the back. It was a 10 p.m. showing. So 10 o'clock at night, the very last showing of the evening. Um, this couple brought their entire family, which included a two year old child and a baby. The baby slept the entire way through, so no complaints there. The two year child, like, had a freak out. And not only was it a two year child who was just, like, stomping around and screaming, they let the child wear the shoes that have the lights that go off whenever the shoes oh, like, touch no. the ground. So not yeah. only she screaming and making noise, the entire theater is, like, all of a sudden flashing, like, some kind of disco theater as, you know, her shoes are lighting up. So, you're absolutely right you know that's a bad experience but you go to the alamo draft house you can get a beer you can get a good meal they don't allow the babies in right they do it like you said they do have specific showings that are for um parents and children you know at different times of the day but if you don't go to one of those they ask you politely not to bring your babies and and you know they they i, I don't know how strictly they enforce it but i'm pretty sure they don't let the people come in with the child
0: yeah i like, yes uh Children have to be at least i think six years old to become in with a with a guardian, and if they seem any younger than that, they will not let them in and i've seen I've seen that happen before, so um, you yeah, know they're really serious about the trying to make the experience a good experience.
1: We talked about Alamo Draft house last week briefly when we were talking about the uh, the summer of eighty two right and, and I mean they do special events like that all the time. You and I went to the it wasn't a sing along but it was a live performance of labyrinth. Oh right, yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten about that. That was cool. Where they and showed, they've the also, La- yeah, Go they ahead. showed the labyrinth film, and then they had that that like it wasn't a band. It was two guys, but they performed live music. They performed all the music from labyrinth, you know, live there. It was really awesome. Yeah, and they do things like
0: that all the time. Um, we, Holly and I went to one of their – what they call the rolling road shows where they, they bring out a giant inflatable screen somewhere and they'll show a movie. So last time when I talked about that Mad Max thing that was going to be at a at a racetrack, it was a rolling road show and they had explosions and stuff like that. Holly and I went to go see uh, a silent movie, Buster Keaton's The General there, which is about – a Buster Keaton movie where, where yeah, the general is a train. And so you took a train out there and you had the train in the background doing the sounds for a train during the showing. It was completely awesome. Um, they've done stuff like they show the Goonies in a cave just outside of town. They show Jaws like when you're in the lake on an inner tube. Uh, they show Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the house it was filmed at. They do some really amazing things. And just in their regular what they call their signature series, they have a lot of really fun events. They had um, they had something that they used to call Mr. Sinus Theater, uh, but they got in trouble a little bit with uh, Mystery the people who own Mystery Science Theater. And now they're called um, – I be, oh, Master Pancake Theater, and they do kind of comedy type shows, riff tracks type stuff, which is a lot of fun. They have um, they do sing-alongs and quote-alongs, and they have celebrity guests, and so basically they're just they're just a ton of fun, a great great show. One of my favorite stories is for the people a, a few years ago who went to go see Wrath of Khan. Um, they while they were seeing Wrath of Khan like at the very beginning of the movie the film like caught fire and melted and everyone was like oh gosh what happened and then Leonard Nimoy came out and showed the new Star Trek movie so you know they do some really amazing and awesome things at the Alamo Drafthouse it's a great experience and i think theaters especially nowadays when when the theater experience you know people are having these serious problems with it theaters need to do that kind of thing and just kind of be these film lovers and and uh, they're just incredible people
1: so I, I completely agree. You know, look for venues like that to really get that, that true, um, film, film going experience, right? If you want to go and enjoy your movie, not just enjoy the movie, but have a, a beer and maybe have some fries or something like that and really be able to kick back and enjoy it, that's where you got to go.
0: Now, another thing the Tech Shop Boys talked a bit about, um, a couple of episodes ago was the Tupac hologram that came up at Coachella and, um, I wanted to mention that a, a little bit. Um, that hologram isn't wasn't quite like what you would consider a real hologram. It's it's an illusion, um, which is called Pepper's Ghost, and I'll put some links uh, that describe how it works because people have been using this illusion for for some time now, and and just these companies have gotten really good at making really convincing illusions. But there but there are like some really crafty diehard people who do like Halloween haunts at their house making this illusion. So it's it's pretty cool, and I'll, I'll link some of that stuff up.
1: And if I remember correctly, that's just using, I don't want to call it smoke and mirrors, but it's really based off of a 2D image and then projecting in such a way that, yeah,
0: produces the 3D image right right and and you know you can you can you can make the illusion of walking uh forward and backward on a on a stage and stuff like that and uh we've seen that before uh the 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 band the gorillas for example the animated band they that's the way that they do their concerts um in japan you had something called vocaloid and uh they also that also works in exactly the same way and it, it looks really awesome and really cool uh and it's this illusion type effect and like i said we'll link to it with some sites that go into detail about how this effect is created uh but you can find some depictions of it online they're kind of off because you know it's watching something on youtube but you can kind of get a sense of how cool it looks
1: yeah it's it's and they've already done another one who did they just do again they they just use it again recently for uh well freddie mercury i think yes you're absolutely right freddie mercury from Queen. that's that was who i was trying to remember
0: yeah, so they, yeah, they did Freddie Mercury in a concert earlier this month too. So uh, yeah, that's that's pretty neat. And I don't know if we're going to be seeing more of that or not. I don't know quite how I feel about that, but uh, you know, at least it looks pretty cool.
1: When will they realize that the real money isn't Elvis? I mean, yeah. just go <laughs> for the cash cow. Yeah. So, oh, so a you- couple of res- go ahead. Well, I just want to mention, we've mentioned the Tech Shop Boys a lot and I just for anyone, um, we're we're part of their network and so we're we're posted there as part of their main page. If you want to go find the Tech Shop Boys, you go to thetechshopboys.com. Don't go to just techshopboys.com, that won't get you there. So it's, you know, the www.theTechShopBoys.com, and that's their site. I just want to make sure to get them properly linked there.
0: Yes, and their and their podcast is a lot of fun. They sound like they're having a lot of fun making it, so it's it's quite cool. Um, so a couple other things I wanted to mention: um, some of the people on the coming out of the basement blog have finally realized that we're doing a podcast, and they've gone back and started listening to it. And uh, and and at least one Derek, who who was one of the guys who came up with this this whole thing, uh, he he is desperate to correct me or, or add to some of the things I've said about board games because he's become a huge board game fanatic so I think we're going to try to have him on uh, one of these days especially when stuff gets a little crazy for me I think if we can arrange for him to get on to talk a bit about board games that would be awesome because uh, he plays Dissension, Dominion, he's played every game that I talked about certainly but he's played a lot more so hopefully we can have Derek on at some point the other thing is I got some responses about the power fantasy and specifically how, how females might view the power fantasy. Um, my wife Holly um, talked to me a little bit about it and she sent me a link to a long discussion um, about what power fantasy might mean because people have different definitions for that. And there's different kinds of stuff like people rising to power, the hopeless gain hope and, and things along like that, people that that people might want to be in, in one sense, to to, to have – basically, to have some kind of power. And, uh, and in addition to Xena, Holly and some other people sent me some lists of people that might be um, considered power fantasies. And uh, the first one on the list that I got here was Beatrix Kiddo, who is, of course, the bride from
1: uh – wow, now I'm blanking.
0: Um, you know be- who I'm talking
1: about. No. I mean, it sounds familiar, but I don't know the reference off the top of my head. Beatrix Kiddo, and, and we can both <laughs> – we're both
0: like Russian. Yes, exactly. Uh, Kill Bill. Duh. There you go. The bride from Kill Bill.
1: Oh, that's right. Uh, the reason – they they bleep her name. That's why I can remember it in, every, in right. the entire movie. So.
0: Yeah, until the end. Uh, also, people got mentioned Catwoman, Buffy, Willow from – those are both from Buffy. Um, Sailor Moon, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. Um the, some of the females in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Drag, Dragon, and a lot of the females in these, these kind of martial arts movies. Um, mentioned several anime people, the people from Bubblegum Crisis, Ghost in the Shell, Lena Inverse from Slayers, Yuna in the Final Fantasy series, uh, Katara Tafkora from Avatar, Utena, uh, and all these different types of, of uh, characters. I uh, also mention, let's see, going on to other lists, uh, Hermione, who I think is an awesome, my favorite character in the entire Harry Potter, Potter series, honestly. Um, my Little Ponies, Leia, Marion, Ravenwood, Katniss from The Hunger Games, Ewan, Samus. Uh, River Zoe and Anara from Firefly. So there's all kinds of examples here. And, and I think maybe this is something that we can revisit in the future episode talking about, about this type of thing.
1: As it was explained to me, it's, for guys, it's a, ma- a matter of like physical dominance. We like to see the Conans, you know, people who are obviously stronger and, and, you know, capable of overcoming great obstacles and odds. From what it was explained to me is, um, for women, it's more of a confidence thing. They like to see not just women who are powerful, but women who are confident in, in their, Abilities and their position and what they do—that's that, what does it a lot more from that perspective. They like to see that confidence that that confidence radiate from the uh, the character.
0: Yeah, so I think that would be something interesting to talk about um, going forward too. Yeah. Um, so finally, we mentioned Diablo Three. Are you ready to talk about it?
1: I am. I am. Um, I've been playing it. I've I've already beat the game a couple times. You know, working my way through the, the various uh, uh, difficulties and such. Um, and you and I kind of briefly talked about this uh, this weekend when we were wrapping up our Mutants and Masterminds campaign. Um, but all in all, I'm, I'm just I'm a, I'm disappointed with the game. And that's not to say it's a bad game when when I say that I'm not implying that it's the worst game ever, and that it has no merit. It's a fun game. You play with your friends, you wade through the the you know waves and hordes of monsters. but my problem is is that a it's a pretty short game, you know, and the, you're expected to replay through it several times with the different difficulties, so you know that's supposed to be part of the lengthiness of the game but also. <sighs> a lot of the stuff, you know, the characters feel pretty generic in their build out, you know, not as robust as it was in Diablo 2. Um, so a lot of the characters are going to end up kind of playing the same. Um, only one class actually makes use of its weapons. Everyone else uses um, kind of um, static uh, uh, animations for their abilities. Only the barbarian is the one who ever actually swings his sword or what have you. Um, but all in all, my, my biggest problem is they really kind of hype this game Around the economic system You know they're going to have an integrated auction house That's going to be across all the servers And it's going to use real money And the auction house for my money Is kind of the thing that's breaking the game right now I haven't used it that much So what's going on with that So nothing binds to your character Right You're, You Whatever you use You can use it and throw it up on the auction house Someone else can use it They can throw it up on the auction house So because of that, it's very cheap to find ridiculously good gear on the auction house, right? Like the the quote-unquote rare items, the yellow items. You can equip yourself. You can fully equip yourself on the cheap with those yellow items, the ones that have all the really good stats. And then as soon as you're done with it, you out-level it, you just throw it back up on the auction house, right? And because there's literally millions of people playing, getting more and more gear, getting this stuff – the market has become so saturated with this stuff that it, like I said' it's, it's very easy to find very good gear and get yourself fully equipped. you know the other guys didn't know about this and then I, I started doing it and, and my friends you know uh, Scott Matt and, and JJ they all did the same thing and we found our, all of us having like super awesome gear and nothing being a challenge anymore. So,
0: for me, I, I enjoyed Diablo 3. I think there's some things that it did really well, but really, the most of my enjoyment has come from playing with people that I know. And that's the cool part. Like, playing with people that I hadn't seen in a while, or that live in other, that live in other states, or whatever, and getting together and playing with them has been awesome. Um, and, and I'm hoping to play with Holly uh, more as well, uh, which is cool, because it's hard sometimes to find these kind of multiplayer games that, that you can, that you can do that with. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not like a giant improvement over Diablo 2. I mean, it is, it is basically an extension of the game, right? It, it plays very similarly to Diablo 2, except I think there's some things that aren't. That are worse. One is is that multiplayer is now four players instead of eight. So I remember in Diablo 2, you can have these giant parties, which was kind of neat, but now you're, you're limited to four players. And that happens, you know, it's, it's surprisingly easy to get four players uh, in a game. The other thing that I found kind of uh, I was unhappy with was the. Single-player online game Must be online and connected to the servers In order to play the single-player game And um, there's different theories About why they did that and what they said But, you know, especially at those first couple of days When, you know, we know people who took the day off And the servers were down half the time That's, I think, a pretty big problem
1: I mean, Blizzard's going to have a hard time um, Recovering from the embarrassment That was Era 37 Right? Yeah and, and so I wasn't
0: really happy with
1: that. You're right. And, and they didn't break the mold. I mean – but to be honest, I, I shouldn't be surprised by that. We, we shouldn't be surprised by that because like StarCraft 2 came out and that was absolutely StarCraft. I mean nothing groundbreaking about it, nothing I, – I, I, I hate to use it because it comes across as very negative. But there's nothing innovative about it. The first StarCraft was very innovative. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. same
0: thing with Diablo three. And, yeah, and again, it's not a bad game. It's not. I, I like it. I enjoy it, and I like playing with other people. So I, 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 know I am going to be continue to play it with some other people. That's not, and that's not a problem. But it seemed like it would have had so much more potential than what it
1: actually came out with. And here's the thing, and here's the the biggest problem I see with it. It plays as enjoyable to me as games like Titan Quest and Dungeon Siege. Now, Titan right, Quest or Torchwood or Torchwood. Now those right. games are considered more genera versions of the Diablo game, right? They're considered the I, I don't know, the the ugly stepchild or the second cousin, however you want to put it, right? But if your game is only is only on par with the games that mimic you, it kind of feels like you've done something wrong, then. Right. And
0: I you know, I'm sure they're going to be coming out with expansions. That's the thing that that's one of the things that Blizzard does. But right, the gameplay isn't all that different you know i can go back into a diablo 2 game and not feel like i'm having a substantially different experience and that might be part of what they were aiming for but at this point in time with with so many games out there you know clamoring for your attention that's a bit of a disappointment
1: it is it is but like i I know this is coming across negative we both enjoy the game but we we don't I, i this is the caveat we don't enjoy it because it's a good game we enjoy it because we're playing with our friends and playing with our friends is always enjoyable right Yep, so, exactly right. So and, and that's really what it comes down to. So if you like Diablo, it is very much a Diablo game, you know, and, and you'll be able to left-click your way through the hordes of hell pretty quickly. Right. All, All right. right, are we ready to move to the main topics? The main topics. Now, we highlighted last time that we had some requests um, to talk about how to get into GMing, you know, tips and tricks for... People who are maybe getting back into GMing who haven't done it for a while or new GMs, uh, game masters or dungeon masters, however you want to put it. Um, and so I think you and I, uh, we're going to cover some of that and then we have a mystery topic for you to cover. Um, right.
0: So, Which I already said what it was. <laughs>
1: oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, I was going oh. to
0: talk, talk about classic anime.
1: Oh, okay. I must have, I must have glazed over on that part for some reason. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. so, um, Tips and tricks for for starter GMs. I know I've got some stuff that I want to mention. Anything off the top of your head first before I get into my part? Um, why don't you go ahead and start? And I'm sure that I'm sure that
0: my list will probably. I, I made a list of things as well. I'm sure that my list will also have stuff on your list. But go for it.
1: So the number one thing I want to impart in everyone's brain. And this is something that I learned. Uh, we mentioned Tom Brister a lot in here, and I want to mention him again. This is something I learned from playing with him. The number one thing you have to ingrain in your brain when you're becoming a GM and you start to facilitate these these stories for people, it is not a game of you versus the players. And I think a lot of GMs kind of get stuck in that mentality that it's them versus the players, right? And then when the players start you know, winning every combat the the GM starts getting really frustrated because he feels like he's not winning the combats. I know we have one particular player. I'm not going to mention his name, Jason. Um, that <laughs> if he if he as a GM, you know, if he doesn't win, if he if he's like you know, if we trounce a combat, he gets really frustrated by it because he has that sort of us versus – you know me versus them mentality. You can't have that. It's just going to create a bad relationship between you and the players. It's going to create a lot of in-combat fighting. So what you really got to come across as you are the facilitator of a story. There is a story that's being told, and you're helping people who don't know all the ins and outs of the story. They're just people who are like watching a television show. You're helping them experience that story. That's really what your job is. Some people might say, well, then I'm not going to have any fun there's going to be tons of fun to be had, right? It's just a matter of understanding what your role in is in the bigger picture, right? You're facilitating the story. Players are going to do some dumb things that you'll get some chuckles out of. You know, you're, they're going to do some innovative things that you're going to be like, wow, I didn't think you could, you know, pull that off or something like that. And really, you're just trying to facilitate the story from them, trying to move it along, keep it fun, keep it interesting. Um, come right, up it's, with because it's... Ideas. it's
0: Right. It's their story, generally. I mean, they are usually the stars of the story. Yeah. I've been in some games where so that hasn't been the case. But usually, and you usually want them to be the stars of the story. But yes, I, I agree with you completely
1: there. And, and that's a very good point. I don't think enough people believe that. I think a, uh, a lot of people, when they start jamming or DMing, they think it's their story and the players are just kind of there, right? Right. And uh, I, I just – You know, you you can't think of it that way because these are the people who are playing in your world. Sure, you're throwing in elements for them, right? But it's really about how they interact with those elements, right? So um, a good example is this Mutants and Masterminds campaign that we wrapped up this weekend. A lot of that campaign was based around how you guys were going to kind of enter the world of the DC universe, interact with it, and, and stamp your place on it. You had a lot of options at the end. Um, and surprisingly, you guys picked like the one option that involved no combat.
0: <laughs> yeah, that surprised me too.
1: <laughs> I was like, we got through an entire. I felt I, I almost felt like I did something wrong, like I was boring you guys or something like that, because I was like, we didn't have any combat. We we got through an no, entire it, session.
0: No, but it worked out. I mean, it was you know we used the term realistic, you know, with quotes, but yeah, you know, it was realistic to the story and to the the world, right? So no, that was that was a lot of fun, and we yeah we went through an entire game. No combat, but we did a lot in that game and in that universe. And yeah, it's it's kind of in in this particular sense of looking at the, the RPG, it's it's kind of the shared narrative. I think is is a, is a useful way to think about it. That's well, a between great between the DM experience. and the players. I,
1: I that, that that I think that that's much better. Good job on that one. That's much better than my facilitator. You're right. A shared narrative between you and the players. And so in that campaign, you guys got to decide. You guys got to decide how you're going to end it, right? How you're going to, you know, ultimately, and it's, you know, we said it's not wrapped up. We're going to do like another chapter, but you guys had complete control over the narration over how things were going to happen. I didn't force you into any, you know, particular formula or ending, right? right. So mm-hmm. you, you could have gone out bl- guns a blazing or you could have, you know, parlayed your way through the entire thing and you, and you guys did a great job. So, You gotta get in the right mindset for being a GM. And and there's nothing wrong if you just, if you don't have that mindset, you know, not everyone can, can, you know, GM. It's, it's not a a fault on you. I mean, I can't do a high jump. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. So if you're a very competitive person, you're just very competitive. You always have to beat people at whatever the task is. Might not be good for GMing because that's not what it's all about.
0: Yeah, that that might be something you need to keep in check more, or, or something you, for, something for you to work on, if if that is the way that you're going to approach this kind of thing. And certainly, um, it's it's being a GM is is different from being a player uh, in in a lot of ways. But you know. There, there are certain things that will, that, that are, that are similar to them in this kind of constructive narrative, creating your character, you know, creating the world. Um, but yes, competitiveness between GMs and players in that kind of direct, I have to beat you kind of way. You know, it can be maybe fun in, in like a specific battle or something like that. But for an overall game, that's really not something you want to do because that makes it a really antagonistic environment. And that's not only awkward between you and the GM, but all the rest of the players, too. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. So one of the other kind of tips I wanted to to hand off was um, about rules adjudication. You know, any game you play, no matter if it's the easiest game or the most complicated game, there's rules for how you play the system, right? We're humans. You know, we have real jobs, real families. You can't be expected to know all the rules 100% of the time, right? Mm -hmm. So... Oftentimes, as you're playing and you're trying to figure out something, you're going to get bogged down in rules adjudication. How do I do this? What's the DC for that? You got to feel comfortable in tweaking the system that is appropriate for the situation. Don't let combat get bogged down as everyone's trying to figure out the rules for fighting on slippery ice in the middle of a snowstorm and blah 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 blah. Right? Sometimes you're just going to have to ad hoc it and say, okay, well that's going to be a like a, a difficulty challenge 15 balance check, and you need to do this, 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 right? And if someone argues with you, right, you can entertain the argument for a little bit, but ultimately say, hey, you know what? When we'll finish this combat with the rules as it is, and then when we have time, we'll go look it up and make sure we know it right for the, for the next time, right?
0: Right, and if, if something goes horribly, horribly, horribly wrong because of the rule decision that you made, well, then maybe you can go back and revisit it. But you really don't want to let it bog down everything. <laughs>
1: And and, and you don't want to tell players that they're wrong and never throw the GM card and say, well, I'm GM. Anything I say is is the rules, right? That's not why you're doing it. You're not trying to to throw around authority, right? You're trying to say, hey, combat's getting bogged down by us trying to figure out what the rules are. We need to kind of pick up the pace here. We got story to tell. We got, you know, uh, quests to complete and stuff like that. We're going to make this rule adjudication here just to get things moving along. When we have time, kinda, you know, out of the game, whatever, we'll figure it out. If something horribly bad happens, we can go ahead and revisit it. Treat your game like a comic book, you can retcon, you know, retroactive continuity, whatever bad might happen, right? Don't feel, you know, bad about doing that, but, you know, feel free to, to kind of make tweaks like that. I make tweaks like that on the fly if like um my players are having a particular difficult time with an encounter and i see that there's a chance that they might um what they call tpk total party wipe total party kill um i will tweak the enemies in such a way to make them a little bit easier like i'll take off some of the resistance or hinder them a little bit you know maybe strip out one of their powers or I'll do the opposite if, if uh, the party is having just such an easy time with it. There's no challenging at all. I might beef up the characters a little bit, give them a few extra hit points, a little bit more on their damage, whatever. It's okay to, to, to do it on the fly, but do it on the fly not for the purpose of beating them, but for the purpose of making it more or less challenging that is appropriate for their enjoyment level. Mm-hmm. And so you got to feel comfortable making those on-the-fly modifications. It's, it's your... These rules are all all made to just facilitate the game, but feel free to, to modify the rules as is appropriate for the situation you're playing in. Right. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is, um, modules, modules, modules. The reason I love modules is that I have a full time job that, you know, makes up the majority of my time. Um, Uh, even though I say this, I did kind of invent the Mutants and Masterminds campaign on my own, but uh, for the most of my stuff, I use modules, but even then, I modify the modules just to make them a little bit more unique. The reason I I like modules is because if you're busy, if you're busy, you don't want to have to spend the time to think up of an entire world, an entire story, and all the characters, and NPC names, and what's this person's motivation, what's that person's motivation. That's a lot of time. So, I recommend picking up modules and then feel, you know, always feel free to tweak the module in such a way that is appropriate for your campaign. So a great example is the Scales of War Adventure Path. I am using that as a base for my A-Team themed campaign. Modified character's name. I got General Morrison and all that good stuff. So it's a very highly modified version of that Adventure Path. It's just the base. It's like, it's like a soup, right? It's like the chicken broth. And then I throw in all my other vegetables and, and and protein or what have you to you know kind of spice it up. So it, for the busy person with a real life and a real job, use the module as your base, and then that allows you to free up some time, and you can tweak it on the fly as you will.
0: Definitely. So I had a couple of things to mention too. Um, just a, a little, some some more generic and some almost exactly what you were saying. Um, one is that it really helps to. If, so, we talked a little bit about a living campaign last last time, and we didn't really explain that, and we did have a question about that. And what a living campaign is, it's, it's this giant shared world campaign, and and we used the the uh, role playing game association from Wizards of the Coast, the RPGA example last time when we were talking about what they call living Greyhawk. And what that is is it's a game that. Everybody in the world can join, and in that particular case, it was based you know the modules you played were at least partly based on where you lived physically. So we lived in Texas, so we, put, we could play these modules. Everyone could play what they call the core modules and, and other regions. everyone had their own modules too. But the living campaign is different from what, what other games are in that the rules have to be the same for everybody. Right. So in that sense, you really have to know the rules if you're playing that kind of game because you want to make sure that you're fair to your players and fair to everybody else. Right. So that's, that's a situation where rule stuff tends to be more, more emphasized than, than maybe it would be in what, what we normally call a home game, stuff you play on your own. Um, I, Vastly prefer home games. I, I, I mean, I, I like winning games occasionally, but I prefer home games because of that freedom. Uh, but one of the nice things about, I think, playing in this leaving campaign was, it, it's like in in a lot of senses, it's like trial by fire because you're going in, you're playing with. Often strangers, or you're playing at a convention, or you're running you're running all these games, and so you have to know the rules. You have a set limit for like four hour time slot. You have to know the rules. You have to adjudicate quickly. You have to do all these kinds of things. So in one sense, I think for me anyway, that was really useful uh, in, in getting some of those those skills down.
1: And I think the other aspect of it is the home games um, are great to to play with your friends, but there's a greater social aspect to the RPGA, to the living campaigns. You meet people you might not have necessarily met. I made a ton of friends when I played in the RPGA. You and I wouldn't know each other if it wasn't for the RPGA. JJ, one of our close friends, he's another one who, you know, we wouldn't know if it wasn't for the RPGA. You know, Tom Brister. So uh, a great social aspect. You can make friends. You'll probably also encounter a lot of people that you're maybe not that thrilled with, and and we have plenty of examples of those, but we don't want to focus on the negative here. Right. I
0: mean, there, there are certainly positives and negatives to everything. But yeah, overall, I had a mostly positive experience, I think. So that being said, when I'm looking at stuff for beginning DMs, one of the things that I would want to, want to emphasize is either it's really helpful if you know people already when you're starting up a game, because that way you can kind of get a sense of what kinds of things they're interested in. Do they like combat? Do they like talking? like that kind of thing so kind of, and a really important thing i think when starting a game is the ability to set expectations you know what kind of game is it going to be um is it going to be more of a role-playing game is it going to be more of a combat heavy game is it going to be you know intrigue i think that's a really good thing to have up front um some mechanics will lend themselves more to one type of game or another but they're not necessarily restrictive you know with the and mastermind game that bj ran we could have gone a lot more combat heavy than we did but the rules are such that we don't have to um If we were playing something like the Amber Diceless role-playing game, well, that doesn't lend itself so much to combat and tactical kinds of stuff, so you wouldn't have that option. But some people really like that as well. So that kind of decision is important and in, in kind of setting the expectations about what kind of game you want to... What, what do people think is fun? Um, another thing that I wanted to say is... It's really helpful to get a sense of like the more your players create about their characters and the more they talk about what makes them tick and what they want to do. That gives you the opportunity to help them kind of shine in the story, right? They can, it helps me when I know my characters have, the characters in my game have certain goals. Or, you know, they want to accomplish certain things. And BJ, you know, you did that in the Mutants and Mastermind games particularly early on um, that you you kind of got that information from us that you could integrate it into the game so that we'd have the opportunity to do that. I think that is another thing that kind of helps make people have, you know, help people enjoy the games.
1: You you got your shot at Dark Power Alley Cat got to Tussle with Catwoman Mullet Man became member well, Quasi member of the Justice League Everyone kind of accomplished all the, the, the Big things that they wanted I didn't know that um, JJ was so invested In his character Mullet Man That always just seemed like a uh, Just a, a shot off of uh, the MacGyver Character as sort of a gimmick thing But he was really, at the end of the campaign He's like, Mullet Man wouldn't do that He just right. he wouldn't do that
0: yeah, he, he was real. Yeah, it was really serious, and he was really invested, which I think is real, means it was really successful.
1: That was awesome. Uh, you know,
0: yeah, yeah, it, it, was, it was. You said it was the most serious conversation you'd had around a game <laughs> world, so that was definitely a success. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: another thing that I will say is that, uh, and this also harkens back to uh, what BJ was saying about modules, is that any amount of prep time you can squeeze into helping a game will help. So th- there's different types of games, you know, we tend to, the dichotomy, you know, false dichotomy to a certain extent, but useful model is that you have games that are sandboxes and you have games that are on rails. Right, And the sandbox is kind of – you think of like the Oblivion Morrowind video game where players can explore anything and do anything and go anywhere and you don't really have necessarily a set adventure for them per se. That's a sandbox game. You can do that. It's really hard to run and takes a whole lot of world building in order to get something like that to be really successful. The other – the the polar opposite of that is what they call the rails game, like rail, railroading someone basically. You have a set objective. You have a you know you know that the players are going to have to do this have to do this have to do this, and that extreme also is kind of problematic and tends to be more problematic to players because a lot of people don't like like they're feeling railroaded necessarily. So I think the module thing and taking kind of your own module and, and adapting to adapting it to your players and to the story is is a really nice compromise when you don't necessarily have the time for all of the elaborate world building that you might need to do. Um, but any kind of prep time you have will help, right? If you're doing Maps It helps to have the maps done in advance. If you're doing monsters it helps to have the either the references or the like printouts of the monsters in advance. Uh, the minis chosen, if you're using minis, stuff like that, any, any amount of prep time can help the game significantly. So, you know, like BJ, I work full time. One of the reasons I can't, and I go to school as well. So one of the reasons I can't GM right now, because I, I really like jamming, but one of the reasons that I'm having a really hard time doing it, uh, the last year or so is because I'm super busy with, with work and school. So, uh, and I have, I don't feel like I have the time that I need to do it. So time, time is a big deal. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention, which is kind of this nice little compromise between the um, railroad or the rails and in the sandbox, is: uh, have, you, have you been to the Critical Hits website before? Yes, I've been there. So, so Dave Chalker, the, 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 one of the guys who runs the Critical Hits website, has created something called the Five by Five method which I think is pretty handy. Um, and, and I haven't actually had a chance to use it, but I've heard really great things about it. And if I run again you know, in the near future, it's something I'm going to look at. And basically, it's, it's this kind of grid type thing where you have kind of these five... And it's a way to... Whenever you're doing, especially these epic games, you're always going to have these kind of dangling plot lines going on and stuff happening in the world. And this five-by-five five method is kind of a way of listing things, right? You, you, you can list five major, major quests that have this awesome title... And then for each quest, you live like five kinds of things that you can do to help the quest or to to advance that particular quest that way, as the players decide kind of what kinds of things they want to focus on, you'll have something at least you've thought about it, and maybe you've prepared it and i'll go ahead and put a put put a link to that five by five method because uh, he's done a whole series of articles and and like uh PowerPoints now and 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 stuff about the 5x5 five five method giving presentations and stuff and I think it seems pretty successful so I think that would be something I'd be interested in exploring in the future. And the last thing that I wanted to 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 mention is again completely depending on your on your group. I I really like using props sometimes so for example I've made videos and had like these little video clues before for for some of the games I've run. Um, I, I've used loot cards before where people can randomly select loots, uh, based on, based on the loot cards. Um, I've had minis. Instead of minis, I've used like candy before so that people could defeat the monsters and then eat them, which was, was popular (laughs) sometimes. So, So yeah, I mean, there's, there's just, there's a bunch of little things you can do to kind of make the whole thing enjoyable, um, and and I, I highly you know I highly recommend especially as you get to know your group if you don't know them already or if you know your group, you know you, you can kind of figure out what makes people tick and, and what people you know what what will help people have a good time
1: absolutely I, I used to do some prop stuff myself and I used to put a lot of work into the background and 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 what have you, but you know real life kind of kicks into gear and you can 't do that kind of work all the time, so you do the best that you can to make the an enjoyable game um and you know if any of this doesn't sound at all enjoyable to you it's okay you don't have to be a gm you know we we know two guys who you know don't gm at all and 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 they have more than enough fun just being players you know so it it's gming is definitely not for everyone but i find it to be highly rewarding
0: yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and and I think you mentioned last time you can get some some skills that are applicable to doing other things from jamming. Oh, uh, improv.
1: <laughs> improv is great. Um, it, GMing taught me a lot about you know skills for. Thank you for reminding me about this because this is another one thing I want to touch on. Um, a lot of my skills for teaching. Um, came from jamming, you know, developing a, uh, a, a a action plan, you know, a step by step. You know, I want the students to do this and then get to this and then get to this. That's a lot like building a campaign. I want the players to do this quest, beat this person, you know. So you you kind of architect that that design for a lesson plan just like you would for a, a gaming session. And then, you know, teaching elementary school is all about just thinking on the fly and, oh, kids are having trouble with this verb, you know, so we need to spend some more time with this or they're really understanding this grammar so we don't have to spend as much time with that. I need to do a funny little dance to get them to understand Apple or something like that, right? So, it's all, you know, teaching is a lot of thinking on the fly, thinking on your feet, just like it is for GMing, right, you know? I had characters that got very attached to an NPC that I thought was just kind of a throwaway NPC, and be, they got so attached to it, I was like, well, this, char- this NPC is becoming a main character in the campaign now, right? It, not that the campaign was written as such that that, char- that character should become a you know main character, but you know it's okay to make those kind of you know on the fly adjustments because it's if it's obvious that the players are enjoying it, you know, then it needs that kind of adjustment. Right and and then it applies to work also because a lot of teamwork stuff i've learned came from playing dungeons and dragons right you're you're taking a group of people who their individual abilities will not be able to overcome the obstacles put in place but by using good teamwork skills you know using their powers in, in an associated way you know a team of four or five people can overcome a dragon i know it sounds silly but the skills are so applicable. You have to work together to overcome the obstacles. Just like in work, you know, you have to develop an action plan and you have to work together to accomplish a project or something like that, right? So, and then everyone's going to bring different skills and different abilities to the completion of that project. So, I, I always wanted to write a book that, uh, entitled Everything I, I, something like, you know, Everything I Know in Life I Learned from, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. As, you know, just this sort of, you know, talking about, you know, all these skills that I've picked up and learned from playing, you know, this tabletop game. Cool. So, yeah, I think, you know, like I said, go out. Um, some great websites. Uh, RPG Now, you can pick up a lot of PDFs from there. Um, and you can start experimenting with the games. Uh, a lot of the uh, – we also talked about how a lot of the gaming websites have their own uh, online store. Uh, you said – you mentioned earlier um, that – the uh, White Wolf uh, does all their stuff through RPG now, but Pazio and Green Ronin have their own kind of websites to sell stuff.
0: Yes, although Green Ronin sells an RPG now also, but yeah, they sell their own stuff on their website. Uh, Paizo sells their own stuff on their website. Um, yeah, and so a lot of these companies uh, will sell things from from their own uh, from their own thing. So if you see a game that you're interested in, you, you can usually find uh, the at least the electronic version by by doing a Google search, at different versions of it.
1: Absolutely. So get out there. Start start running some adventures for some people. Yep. And if you have any questions, please let us know. Absolutely. We're more than happy to field any questions that you might have.
0: And, yeah, let us know. I know of at least one person who's going to be starting a game, I think, after listening to this, uh, who, who, you know, by coincidence will be starting a game soon. So let us know if this was helpful at all, please. Uh, the next thing we were going to talk about is I was going to talk a little bit about classic anime. Um, I was just thinking how incredibly old I feel now because I, it's 2012 <laughs> and I've been, uh, I've been an anime fan for about 20 years now. Um, which, wow. That that's 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 going back a while, but you know an, I've I've been an anime fan for a really long time and and uh, watched a whole uh, you know a lot of anime in my time uh, and it's played a, you know a fairly significant role in, in in some of the things I've done. Uh, the most important, which is of course, I met Holly at the local anime club, so uh, it certainly has had some. Uh, significant, uh, uh, impact on my life. You know, I, I, I was one of the founders of the anime club at Syracuse University. Uh, I've been the faculty advisor for the local anime club where I met Holly, uh, when I was a student though. Um, and you know, my very first publication in anything was in An America magazine back in the nineties. So that's, that's, that's all pretty crazy. Um, I'm sure people know what anime is at this point. You know that wasn't necessarily the case 20 years ago, but it it usually is. It's a Japanese word which refers to animation, and we generally use it to refer to Japanese animation. Um, similarly, we have the term manga, which we generally use to refer to Japanese comics. Um, Holly lived in Japan. Uh, BJ, you and Beck also lived in Japan. Did you want to mention anything about the?
1: the the world of anime we we have actually uh, it, it sounds weird to say this but we actually have a fairly limited choice of anime over here in in um, america and in the west the amount of anime over there in manga is just uh staggering you go to any library or any um bookstore and they're going to have you know half of it's going to be books the other half is going to be mangas right and and most of it's black and white mangas just because they can pump them out faster that way There's a lot of good stories to be told there You know, they they definitely don't fear A visual medium for telling a lot of these stories Um, one of the first ones I tried to read in Japanese Was, um, called Sangakushi, uh, which is the Romance of the Three Kingdoms story Which is a classic mm-hmm. Chinese story Um but they got everything out there, and they do a lot of the American stuff over there too. So they have Spider-Man mangas, uh, Avengers stuff, Superman, Batman.
0: X, yeah. X-Men it's, manga, yeah.
1: X-Men manga, it's all over there. And then the anime stuff is really good. They, they have some great animes over there. You, you kinda have to pick and choose a little bit because you're gonna either get stuck with you know, some very kind of kiddie stuff, and there's nothing wrong with kiddie stuff, right? But there's also some more some some anime that's more geared towards adults that have, you know, older characters and tell um more mature type of stories, you know. That that's not just about the fifteen year old kid saving the world
0: right so and and manga in particular tends to be really ubiquitous i mean even when i when i visited there for for a while um when holly was living there it was everywhere i mean any of the stores you went to any of the trains we went on there was there was manga all over the place and yeah they it's it's directed un, you know the us historically uh, comics and have until until you know relatively recently comics have been thought of as a children 's medium and that's certainly changed in the last you know ten fifteen years uh, to a certain extent but a lot of times it's still thought of that way that hasn 't been the case in Japan for quite a while and so you have these different types of anime and manga that are specifically directed to different markets you know the two basic divisions are shojo and shonen which is girls and boys type you know manga or anime but you 've got more than that you 've got stuff you know sign in you 've got uh, other things uh, kind of directed towards different Different audiences, uh, so yeah, like BJ said, you have stuff directed towards kids, you have stuff directed towards adults, and actually, and just because it's directed towards it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only audience that that will enjoy it. I mean, other, there are certainly cross audience uh, fandom, in um, some of the things I'm going to talk about. But yeah, so it, it's this kind of prevalent uh, media that, it, that that you see in Japan, of which we get some of it. And what I was going to talk about today. So we've 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 had. Anime come to the U.S. in various formats for for a long time. You know, when I was a little kid, I remember seeing Robotech, right, or Voltron, or uh, shows called Grandizer, the Spaceketeers, uh, Astro Boy, and those are technically anime, but that's not that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I wanted to go a little bit more uh, more recent than that to talk about some of the stuff that came over early. Are relatively early compared to later things. So the series that that started that I got started on uh, back when they were still doing fan subs and fan subs are a subject that I can talk about sometime uh, at length because it's a really interesting social phenomena uh, that there is a lot of research on or at least some research on. Um, but watching fan subs of a show called Ranma One Half by Rumiko Takahashi and uh, R- Rumiko Takahashi is a famous uh, manga author, mangaka, and she is and I'm not sure if she still is, but certainly at one point she was one. Of the most wealthy people in Japan, um, and specifically because of her of her series, and she did stuff called Urusa Yatsura, who you may see as Lum, um, and and she had Rama One Half, and she's most recently, I think, well, at least in the U.S., what we've seen most recently is Inuyasha. Those are all by the same person, Rumiko Takahashi, and Rama One Half was is a. Uh, a martial arts romantic comedy. And I'll link, a link to some stuff about that. Um, uh, it was actually a Shonen manga that is directed towards boys and ran almost for 10 years in Shonen Sunday. The anime had seven seasons, I think 161 episodes, uh, 13 OAVs, which are direct to video animations, uh, original animation video and two theatrical releases. So it was, it was a, it was a powerhouse and it had more than that too. I mean, they had song albums, they had other image albums, they had all, all other kinds of things as well. Um, and it was really one of the first uh, series that came to the U.S. Uh, from Viz Media. Um, and one of the interesting things about it when it came out was that, even though it was running and shown in Sunday, its audience was uh, slightly more female than male, which was a little unusual, but still, uh, it was appealing to them. So, Robin One Half: um, The plot is that. There's basically, there's, there's a, this, this martial artist, a 16 year old martial artist named Rama Satomi. And he's been engaged to another martial artist by their fathers named, named Akane Tendo. And during his training in China, he fell into a lake and a cursed lake. There's a, this place called Jusenkyo, which is like a thousand curse springs. And as a victim, as part of his curse, he fell into a lake where, um, whenever he gets hit by cold water, he turns into a girl. And whenever he gets by hot water, he turns back into a boy. And so every lake there had a different curse. So at the same time, his father fell into a lake of drowned panda. So whenever he gets wet, he turns into a panda. And so yeah, it's it's a comedy, but it's it's actually it's it's odd because it's it's this really kind of wacky hijinks premise. But it's it's a fun show, um, and and it's about kind of his relationship with Akane and with all these other people coming in, um, and, in and out, and it's kind of. You know changing back and forth between a, a boy and a girl, so in some ways examining this kind of these these kind of gender things and that wasn't intentional, it was just kind of an interesting look at 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 the way these things happen um and it and, and it was it was really popular and it's really funny and back back in the day, you know fifteen fifteen or so more years ago, Robin One Half was one of the shows that I used to use to Introduce people to anime, so uh, you know it's one that I that I would highly recommend as an introduction. The animation isn't uh, isn't nowhere near as good as animation is nowadays, but it's still still a fun show. It's still really interesting and still kind of popular apparently because I just found out they made a live action uh, version uh, late last year or they released a live uh, back in December, which I had no idea. So that's kind of cool. I'm gonna have to track that down
1: at some point. And and that's a a great example. You know, I'm a fan of that series also. I haven't watched it as much as you have, but I've definitely um, tried to keep up the series as best as I can. Um, One of the series that I'm going to mention, and and this is one that you're also very familiar with, um, my favorite anime is Cowboy Bebop. Um, That is a great series. That is a great series. Um, it's one of the most popular ones over here in the States also. It it showed forever on uh, the uh, Cartoon Network on their Adult Swim. And it's not a stereotypical um, Japanese anime, right? It's not going to – a lot of the elements, a lot of the themes, a lot of the characters are not going to come across as very um, Japanese in origin. And it's set in the future. And – my best way to describe it is it feels a lot like um Firefly, in that it's about an ensemble cast, um, you know, these four characters who live in the future, and they're bounty hunters, kind of down on their luck, and each episode is about them going for a bounty and how they usually screw it up in horrible ways, and they're just trying to make their way in the universe, you know, and, and it's sci-fi – They they're still kind of restricted to the our solar system right so they don't really go out you know anywhere intergalactically right so they're going to like Mars and Jupiter and stuff like that so it's not like Star Trek style sci-fi the boat that they're the 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 ship that they're floating around in space is actually a fishing boat right Um, and lands in the water and stuff like that. So it's kind of beat up it's it's it kind of like Blade Runner kind of like Firefly it's 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 a really good series the main character is 27 years old so he's not a 15 year old kid trying to save the world and he's not trying to save the world he's just trying to survive in it you know more often than not
0: yeah, it is. It is a really good series. It is a dramatic series. I mean, there's there are certainly comedic elements of it, but I, I would say overall, it's it's a kind of a serious drama type thing. I think Firefly is a really good comparison uh, uh, to that.
1: And and it's it's got some violence involved in it, right? And there are some you know more uh, mature themes in there. You know, I, at the the last episode, I cried my eyes out. It was so good. Um and yeah I, I it's just one of those really touching, really awesome animes that's been out for a while now i mean that came out in in ninety eight right mm-hmm. um I mean, when we talk about classic anime people you, you gotta throw out stuff like Akira and ghost in the shell um stuff like that's a bit older though Akira's like from nineteen eighty eight right I didn't even yes. realize that I was that old mm-hmm. and that yeah, makes cool. it one of the first crossover <laughs> right.
0: Um, the next show that I wanted to talk about was um, – so Ranma was like I guess a shoujo show. In this case Sailor Moon uh, was another show I wanted to talk about. Also recently talked about a little bit or at least mentioned on on the Geek Girls Rule podcast. Um, Sailor Moon was an interesting one because that was a – Shoujo, a girl directed towards girls show that was released in the, in the U.S., and really I think it's considered the very first successful Shoujo series, uh, released in the U.S. for both its anime and its manga. Um, sometimes it's called, depending on who translated it, because there have been some rights issues, not shockingly, uh, Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon or Pretty Soldier Sailor Moon. Um, it's kind of interesting. So the manga actually went out of print several years ago and only started being printed again this past year. Uh, so it's just being released by Kodansha now in the U.S. again. So you can actually go and find the manga again. The anime is a bit harder to find, but it's it's still available out there. So Sailor Moon is a show in what they call the magical girl genre. And you're talking about... Um, this kind of wish fulfillment type thing in the magical girl genre. It really is literally a complete genre of, of anime where there's a girl who's for some reason or some, for some uh, purpose gets magical powers. And that often involves like transforming into what they call a magical girl. A lot of these shows have, um, what do I want to say? Not marketing, but, uh, toys associated with them not not all of them do but a lot of them certainly do uh, so the people will have uh, different things that you can buy sailor moons wand or the T.R.R. or whatever stuff like that um but it 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 was really considered to have popularized the magical girl genre even in japan or revitalized it even in japan because it's seen something of a decline and it's also considered one of the first uh, magical girl shows that had a whole team of people because sailor moon wasn't just sailor moon but also you know mercury venus earth mars etc um Interesting show definitely had elements of fantasy and mythology in it overall. Uh, the premise is that once upon a time there was this, uh, this galaxy spanning kingdom, our solar system spanning kingdom, uh, that certainly, like, you know, centuries ago that was defeated and destroyed by this evil group called the Dark Kingdom in the US. And in the present day, they've all been reincarnated. And and it's got you know it's 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 a it's a kid show to a large extent, but it's also got some really serious elements to it. You know, there's there's at least temporary some uh, or even permanent deaths in it. There's there's different kinds of, of strange relationships uh, involving in it, and um or you know confused confused relationships between Sailor Moon and her oh whatever I want to say, her ally Tuxedo Mask, let's say. Um, And basically, so that, that's the story there. And the sailor, and to mention the sailor part is, the sailor part comes from the, uh, traditional Japanese schoolgirls uniform, which is uh, called the sailor fuku. And there's a whole story, you know, and there's whole books about why, why Japanese uniforms are, are what they are. And it's largely the result of the end of World War II. Uh, but we can talk about that later, later on. Um, or another time, I should say. But yeah, so they, they have, they basically are wearing their schoolgirl outfits and become these, these superheroes. And, you know, the each are, so each of the sailor scouts is what they called are our, our sailor soldiers are associated with a planet and an element, but an element in the Japanese sense uh, and, and stuff like that. So the main protagonist is this kind of – is this, and I'm using this exactly. She's considered a ditzy girl who's named Usagi, uh, which literally means and, – and in one English translation, her name is Bunny. And this is a reference to the Japanese version of the man on the moon, which is the rabbit on the moon. Um, and that's in- indicative that she is supposed to be Sailor Moon. And at one point in time, she finds a cat. And the cat starts talking to her and she kind of freaks out. But basically, she starts to learn this whole backstory about who she is and how she's the reincarnation of this Queen of this solar system, and uh, a lot of different things happen. So it was it was a it was a pretty popular show in the U.S. Um, it and once it got canceled, you know, this is one of the very first examples of the uh, people trying to mobilize the internet to save a show. There was a site called uh, Save Our Sailors that came out for a while, SOS, and this was back in '96, and they went through a huge campaign to try to get it. Uh, Released in the U.S. again, which was partially successful, or at least in English again, I should say, more successful in Canada than the U.S. But that was that was kind of interesting to watch. Um, also has some exploration of gender roles, a little bit more prominent in the manga, but uh, in, at least in 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 the manga uh, Sailor Moon often saved her basically her boyfriend Tuxedo Mask. Um, also but there were some changes when they came in the US because Sailor Moon also had open homosexuality um, so two characters uh two of the bad guys actually Kunzite and Zoisite, they changed Zoisite to uh a girl in the US although originally Zoisite was male and uh, actually uh, Sailor Uranus and Sailor Neptune um, in the US were changed to cousins Although they weren't, they they were a lesbian couple, you know, by by canon. So there were there were like I said, there were some changes when they when they brought it over to the U.S. markets. Again, you know, different for whatever reason. Um, But yeah, it's a really interesting series. Um, If you can see it, I, I would suggest looking at it. And these these it's kind of odd because for a lot of these series, if you watch one or two episodes, you don't get the. Kind of epic sense of what the series is about um, but there really are some kind of deep stuff about it um, so yeah like, like I said it was it was a, a really good series and I, I was glad to see it come out in the US and I'm glad that the manga is coming out again
1: <clears throat> and one of those examples of you know there there's something out there for everyone you know you may be put off to anime because you don't like the it being stereotyped in a certain fashion you may have a, a stereotype when it comes to anime but really it covers a wide swath of stuff. There's some horror anime. Um what was that one? The the something don't cry that you that we watched. Um uh, yeah, when, when they cry or when they uh, cry. But it's
0: it's the US release.
1: Oh my god, that was a mindfuck anime. Oh <laughs> Right. I, I I came out of that just like like shocked and awed. I was like, what is going on? And and that that is an interesting series. So that that's a series that was based
0: on um a set of, I believe, visual novels, which is this kind of media that we really don't have in the U.S. But um, it's it, – yeah, and it's – and the premise of it is that there's – it's a murder mystery. And how,
1: how much of it did you get to see? I got to see a good portion of it. I don't want to give any spoilers for anyone who's out there, but it's – it's he, like you he said, it's a murder mystery. But by the time you get to the end and, and figure out what's going on, you're just going to be like, what the hell? It, yes. it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's out there. It's good, but it's out there.
0: Yeah, and it's one that, in order to actually get a sense of it, you or to get any kind of resolution, you actually do have to watch the entire series because you watch the first few episodes and you're like, "What the heck did I just watch?" And then you keep on watching and you're like, "Okay, this is this is weird. What just happened in those for you know?" And so there's this there's a real sense of um. What's going on and, and how, how am I supposed to figure out what's happening as you go through? And you do. I mean, you do eventually start figuring out what's happening as you go further and further and further into the series. But yeah, it's definitely one that's worth, that's worth checking out.
1: And then there's some softer, like, love stories, like, um, Tenchi Moyu about a college student who falls in love with this angel and stuff like that. So, you know, then there's kind of goth stuff, like, um, um, you're
0: thinking, was, you're thinking, you're thinking. Oh my goddess, or Amagami sama for the angel, the guy with the. Angel. Oh,
1: you're right. I'm thinking, oh my goddess,
0: yeah. Yeah, Tenchi Muyo is another one where um, there's a there's a guy and basically a bunch of aliens. But yeah, yeah, Amagami sama or oh my goddess. It was I really like um, yeah, it was it was really it's it's a really sweet anime.
1: And then there yeah. was um not Hellblazer, but it was um what was that one about the the vampire in the red coat? Um oh Helsing. Helsing, I knew it was like Hellblazer. Helsing, goth one, you know, uh, post-apocalyptic, vampires are taking over the world. there's one mega vampire is is on our side, killing off people, but we don't know why he's helping us. And and it's you know goth and horror combined with action and stuff like that. And yeah, there there's a lot of good stuff out there. So don't think that anime is just this thing that some people are into. Um, it, there's genres and and all different types out there.
0: Yeah, there's there's one more that I want to that I want to mention, which is one of my favorite anime uh shows of all time. And it's called Ronin Kenshin. And it was all it's been released in the US as both Ronin Kenshin and Samurai X. And it's it's also this kind of drama historical drama type show, um, which is really which I, I actually really like this particular series. Um and basically it takes place um about ten years after this the I guess in the in after what they call the the Bakumatsu towards the, when the uh, when the Meiji government in the late 1800s uh, starts in Japan right and uh, and during during the Bakumatsu which is this transition period where people were fighting and lots of wars the premise is is that back in that time um, there was this really famous assassin known as the Hitokiri Battosai and and he was he was the best of the best and he killed you know dozens and dozens and hundreds of people he was he was just like an expert swordsman and kind of a badass and then when everything won he kind of disappeared and the series takes starts starts off 10 years after that after that kind of really bloody period where you know you're first starting to get this kind of western influence in japan people coming in they're introducing guns and stuff like that swords aren't anywhere near as popular uh samurai really aren't anywhere near as popular and and basically 10 years later um this town is being terrorized by, by, by the Hidakiri Batosai and his gang, right? The, the, this, this assassin. And this kind of klutzy, wandering samurai, uh, named Himurakenshin Kin- Himura walks in. And he's, and he's really kind of a goofball. And he's also like, a, he's also a pacifist. So, uh, the local dun- dojo is the local, where they teach sword training is run by this girl named Kauru Kamiya, and she's she's suspicious of him because he's a stranger coming from outside, so she thinks he might be with the bathosai. But he pretty much proves that he's completely harmless because he's such he's basically such a ditz. And he and he even carries his he does carry a sword, but his sword is like a blunted sword. Uh so it doesn't it doesn't actually cut or anything because he's a pacifist. And she's like, well, whatever, I'll give you a place to stay because you're this wandering kind of samurai. Uh I'm gonna go and stop the bathosai. So she goes to confront the bathosai, and she finds out that he was actually a former student of, of her dojo from her father, who had been humiliated and by her by her by her father and crippled by her father, and he's back basically to have his revenge on her and her dojo. And at this point, you know, he he's just defeated her, and at this point, Kenshin comes in. And he's like, and, and Karu was saying like, no, you know, you shouldn't do this. Swords swords are, swords are made to save people, right? There should be a tool of peace. And, and, uh, and, and Kenshin comes in and the other guy's making fun of him. He's like, oh, here's another person who thinks that swords are for peace. And Kenshin's like, no, no, swords swords are to kill people. Um, and then he, he, and then he says, but I, I like Karu's version better. And he then, of course, Beats everyone up and, and basically knocks everyone out because he's the actual you know assassin who's who's given up that you know he's been through this incredible period of time and is really trying to come to grips with all of the, the the killing that he had done and that's basically the the story there so he comes and starts staying with Kauderu and um and and the whole series is about kind of confronting the past and, and, and you know Japan modernizing confronting the past confronting his past and kind of like not falling back into that. Um, that that evil assassin role that that he once that he once had, and it's an excellent series. Um, they're, they're ser- there's, there's a lot of manga, there's a lot of anime. They also made a really good OAV series called Samurai X that they released here in the US about his past when he was that that assassin, and um, and how and the reason it's called Samurai X is because he has an X shaped scar on his face and like how he got the scar and why he gave it all up. So yeah, it's all it's all it's a really good series. Highly highly recommended.
1: And and one of the other ones, just to kind of prove the point that there's anything out there, um, there's a great anime called Afro Samurai that was kind of made. I hate to use the term, but it was kind of made like a black exploitation anime, right? Mm-hmm. In that the main character is played, uh, voiced by Samuel L. Jackson. He's got a massive afro, and he is a samurai, um, and and it's got that same kind of tone and feel of, of some of the older um, black exploitation films, and it's it's a great one. But it, it just goes to show that. You know, there's all different types out there uh, uh, from, you know, stuff that's more kind of cheesy 70s to more modern stuff to whatever. They do it all. And, and yeah, and, and yeah, and for the and for them, uh, the soundtracks uh,
0: actually for the Japan this was a Japanese uh, uh, anime, right? It was released in Japan. It was made by Japanese, even though Samuel L. Jackson was associated with it. Uh, somebody from the Wu-Tang Clan actually made the soundtrack for
1: that as well. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah it was an awesome soundtrack.
1: soundtrack. Mm-hmm. It, it was an awesome soundtrack. It's a great series. Did you uh, did you finish up Afro Samurai? I haven't. I need to go back and do that. Yeah, it was a great one. I think they made a movie for it too, and the movie was really good too. Mm-hmm. So th- everything out there, you know, th- give it a try. Try some of the ones that we recommend. I like I said, I highly recommend Cowboy Bebop. I highly recommend Afro Samurai. Um, if you're into some of the softer stuff, um, Tenchi Moore is a good one. Um, oh my goddess. Some of the older classic stuff that, you know, I consider kind of like the Blade Runner of science fiction, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, both very good also.
0: So an interesting thing, though, and we'll talk about this some of the time, like you mentioned Tenchi Muyo, incredibly hard to find. It is selling for hundreds of dollars on, on – okay, let me say this. Incredibly hard to find legally. <laughs> it is and selling for hundreds of dollars on eBay, which is kind of crazy. Um, because the publishing company no longer sells it. So,
1: I thought they had like DVDs and stuff of that out there. Is it really? I'm talking,
0: I'm talking about that. It's out of print. So, uh, oh, holy Genuine, crap.
1: which
0: is yep. Yeah. So, if you search for Tenshi Muyo, you'll, you'll find some really expensive stuff out there. So, yeah. yeah. One of the things that, uh, that we might talk about, touch on, uh, some other time.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So I think that'll wrap up um, for today's episode. I think we covered a lot of good stuff. Um, yeah, do you, you wanna I'll link ha- to. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: I was going to say I'll link to a bunch of these shows and stuff from the show notes. Also, a robot chicken parody of Rama
1: one half that they did at one point. Did they do a, a parody they of did. Rama 1? That's awesome. They did. Um, <clears throat> in Just Understand Anything Japanese, if you if you really – Something that maybe not as applicable as everything that we've mentioned, but is a very Japanese um, type of anime and, and manga, um, Duraimon. Duraimon is just, you see that everywhere. And it's just a story about a kid, um, sending a robot from the future to, to, to help himself with stuff, right? So it's a weird one, but it's been around forever and it's everywhere in their culture. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's highlight next episode. Anything you, you want to keep your your uh, topic a mystery? So
0: I've I'm going to see if I can get one of our friends to talk about board games. Maybe for next time. It kind of depends on some scheduling issues. Um, that's going to be a, that's going to be definitely a topic that we talk about at some point.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think we need to. We when we did the tabletop one, we kind of went really fast on that. I think we yeah. There's a lot of stuff we kind of glazed over just because you could spend – each one of those those tabletop games we covered, you could spend hours on just one of those alone. And so we tried to fit a lot in at one time. Um, and, I think – I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: I said, and if we can't get someone on, I think we're hoping to try Lords of Waterdeep, which is the new Wizards of the Coast game soon. And maybe that's something we can talk about.
1: Absolutely. Um, Lords of Waterdeep, we, we've been wanting to play that for a little while. Um, for my topic, I want to talk about some of the MOBA games, the arena-style competitive games. We kind of briefly highlighted those uh, style of games in the um, sexism in, in comic series, talking about how these these games are trying to become mainstream. Right there, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars, or, or you know, in some cases, millions of dollars at play. Like League of Legends, they're Tournament their their championship tournament will be I think it's a million dollar pool for the right. uh, the first place uh, first place in that so you know big money starting to become behind these these types of games this style of game and so I think um, people hear about them they know about Dota Defense uh, Defenders of the Ancient they know about League of Legends they they know I know it by name but they might not know it by what it actually is and so I think maybe providing a handy you know, newbie guide, you know, let's talk about it, what it is, what it means, and, and, you know, when you start getting in to play that stuff. I want to cover some of that. Sounds good. All right. So that's been another episode of Coming Out of the Basement. Um, you, you can, can find sh- us, you can find us online at ComingOutOfTheBasement.com. And, uh, you can contact us on Twitter at C O T B one, or you can email us at podcast at ComingOutOfTheBasement.com. I'm sorry, almost, I almost, uh, talked over your bit there. I should And, that's know. Okay. and you, can also,
0: you, you can also now find us at thetechshopboys.com. So we've got a link from there now as well. So this new network, uh, as yet unnamed, uh, hopefully we have some really interesting up, stuff up soon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I apologize. I should know the rhythm. I should know the style <laughs> by this point. <laughs> that's quite all right. Bad BJ. Bad BJ. Okay. So <laughs> catch us next time, everyone. You have a great day. Thank you for listening. Bye.